This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Hayden. How is it today? Uh, pretty good. Today's the weed day. Weed Wednesday. Yeah, can- uh, cannabis is uh, legal in Canada. It's a whole new world. A whole new world. Not really. I mean, before we started recording this podcast, I was just on the Ontario Cannabis Store ordering you pre-rolled <laughs> joints. Snitch. You're a fucking snitch. <laughs> There's no more snitches. <laughs> yeah. It's over. It's, uh, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't order it myself anything because I feel like the product, the spectrum of products is pretty limited. Yeah, and I also feel like uh, you're going to try and bum joints off me anyway, so that's fine. Um, but no, I wanted to try it. Why not? I feel like just, like, you can, so why not? Yeah, you can, so why not? I mean, I can, yeah. I'll just, you know, go to my dealer and sort out my usual yeah. products that the OCS does not supply. And that's the anti-capitalist choice, right? Everyone has that option. <laughs> that's bad advice. Do not take legal advice from this podcast. Keeping wow. it illegal. This is like one of the things. So when I was in police foundations, uh, that's one of the things that they highly discouraged us from was partaking in any kind of illegal activity, even whilst you were doing your training, because it was dealt. It was viewed as a um, poor judgment. We should all participate in more illegal activity. So this is exciting for me because this is like going to be the first time that I've smoked weed. Though the reason that I had to, <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, so the reason I had to order you weed was because we have discovered that the legalization of marijuana is actually still discriminatory. Yeah, it's for sure is. It's classist, of course. So, I mean, I'm sure some people who have, like me this morning, tried to buy weed and couldn't because I don't have a credit card. I'm an anti-capitalist queen. I do not <laughs> believe in credit. It is a fiction. And so I went to go try and buy it and even use like my freaking debit card which has like the mastercard debit even that wouldn't work so there's a whole systemic barrier you have to be able to have a credit card in order to buy weed from the online store and many people native people don't have credit cards yeah it's a real you know class kind of uh barrier to put in place to accessing what is you know realistically a medical uh, well, a legal product. Yeah, legal and health, you know, health healing product. Yeah, that's what we're going with. So I have a few boxes of marijuana coming to my house. Nice. Uh, See, this is exactly what I mean. Because um, <laughs> as generously as you were, and me being like this morning when I was like, I can't buy weed, I don't have a credit card. <laughs> Uh, Hayden generously offered to buy me weed, which was uh, well, appreciated. Well, I wasn't that generous because <laughs> I haven't paid you for rides on the red road for a couple weeks. Yeah, uh, Hayden owes me so much money. So I'm just going to pay you in weed. That's not going to work out because I have asthma. Okay. Going back to my days of, uh, I used to manage a band. Mm-hmm. They were called Insert Gentlemen. I thought you meant like a band, like a First Nations. No, like you were a band I did manager? not. I never managed No. <laughs> It's like the last job I would ever do. Uh, and they used to pay me in... Uh, well, never mind. This this isn't going to make it in the podcast. <laughs> so I, as a comedian, as a stand-up comic, um, oftentimes I perform in weed rooms Have since I started doing comedy. Um, I'm coming up on my fifth year of doing stand-up. And oftentimes I perform in, um, you know, the Hotbox Cafe in Toronto or... Um, uh, the Underground, which is another uh, private club in Toronto, and you go and people would uh, use their medical marijuana in these establishments, and you would provide them entertainment while they uh, took their medication, and you would be their live entertainment. So I've done that and been in those kind of spaces and told jokes, and then oftentimes when you're uh, in different circumstances, people would pay comics in weed cookies. So I uh, would just throw them in my freezer 
And then when I moved out of my apartment in Toronto to move to Ottawa, I forgot all my weed cookies and the oh, thing, no, the and I never ever actually ate any of them. Well, that's a nice housewarming gift for the person that took over your apartment. Yeah, I gave them to my roommate. I'm sure she also had her weed cookies. That she was also a comic, and like hers were also there. Um, because edibles are dangerous. You got to be they, really careful when you're very, consuming edibles. You do. I have experienced that by accident. Um, and there are no edibles for sale on, by accident in air quotes. There are no, there are no edibles for sale on the Ontario Cannabis Store. Nope. You cannot do that. There's spray though. Yes. I've never heard of spray. It's like a topical spray, right? You spray it where it hurts, which is actually probably something I should have got because of my chronic back pain, but whatever. Like Tiger Bomb. Yeah, essentially. Except weed. It'll be interesting to see how it ha- what happens on First Nations. I mean, Tyndanega, of course, is the First Nation weed capital of, I think, North America. Mm-hmm. They got like 28 dispensaries or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of, it's a little bit questionable. I mean, we had a policy brief today on, uh, well, I guess it would have been last week by the time you hear this podcast, but Bob Watts wrote us a piece on on cannabis and you still have to get a provincial license if you're a first nation you know you have to apply to the province to get a license to sell marijuana which i think is mm. uh yeah a violation of mm-hmm. nation to nation relationships mm-hmm. i mean uh, yeah <laughs> speaking of which speaking this is my which- transition Speaking of this which, nation, nation, you mentioned Yellowhead, Hayden. What I is did. What is that? Do what you is, want to talk about Yellowhead? Yeah, so I guess that's a thing too, right? Whether it's advisable. Because I don't think we've ever really talked... We've referenced Yellowhead on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. But we haven't truly jumped into what Yellowhead is. Right. Well, thanks cool. for the question, yeah. Courtney. <laughs> Yellowhead is a uh, First Nation research center based in the faculty of arts at ryerson university we're modeling ourselves as a indigenous think tank the first uh indi- national indigenous think tank in in the country uh we're a group of uh primarily indigenous scholars at ryerson university uh i'm the executive director of yellowhead shiri pasternak who's non-indigenous is a, a strong ally she's our research director we have damian lee and julie tomiak uh, our project manager yumi namata and uh, we've got a board of advisors, this group of board of advisors, six indigenous uh, leaders from across the country, and our token uh, white policy analyst has joined us on that board. We have 15 research fellows across the country. And basically, Yellowhead is trying to support First Nations expand, who are interested mm-hmm. in expanding their jurisdiction beyond the reserve boundary uh, in all areas of life, but primarily relating to land, law, governance, um, and we're also trying to hold governments accountable, so federal, provincial, First Nation, territorial uh, governments accountable for the policies that they create and then deploy that affect the Indigenous people's lives. Uh, trying to refashion the research relationship between universities and communities to move away from the very exploitative, extractive type of research that's mm-hmm. traditionally done with, uh, with communities or uh, uh, to communities. Uh, we do public education to help demystify the relationship between Indigenous people and Canadians and the so-called nation-to-nation relationship, try to break down what settler colonialism is and how it affects uh, First Nation governance. Um, so we do a lot of that. And finally, we work on mentoring and uh, training Indigenous students and non-student youth who uh, want to come in and be uh, well, we hope that they, you know, we're working with the next generation of, of indigenous leadership. So those are our sort of broad objectives at Yellowhead, and we um, do everything from community workshops to major research reports to weekly policy briefs, uh, fundraisers for communities. Uh, we give a funnel cash to land and water defenders uh, through the Art Manual Awards, and the uh, we launched in June. Our sort of soft launch was in June, and then we have a formal launch, which is happening this week. So this podcast will air the day that we officially launch. So mm-hmm. it feels like we've been around for a long time, but um, we really just started. And uh, we launched 
with a close look at the federal government's emerging indigenous rights framework. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Well, they call it the Indigenous Rights Recognition and Implementation Framework. Yes. The Rights Recognition Framework. Just to make it as inaccessible as possible. Is that how you feel overall? So you've been following it pretty closely. I have been following it moderately closely. I feel like I have not necessarily been as engaged as you have been, but you've actually gone to like some of the public consultations and things like that. I think... I don't think that many people are paying attention at all. And I think it's sort of half obfuscation by the federal government uh, and sort of some misdirection. Like there's lots of, there's lots of money for water and there's, you know, supposedly money for education and Carolyn Bennett, and Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And of course the prime minister are out there. They have very good speech writers. There's probably some Indians in there. Uh, talking about decolonization and reconciliation and all this stuff. And so I think the average, uh, you know, average First Nation person or even average Canadian are just sort of like, well, I shouldn't say that because I think the average First Nation person is still pretty cynical and skeptical, but uh, by and large, the discourse is the liberals are doing good stuff. Even if we don't know what they're doing, they're up to good stuff. And so... Uh, Mm -hmm. that means that there's a lot less scrutiny on Mm -hmm. the not-so-good stuff that they're doing. And so when we wrote this report uh, back in June, we analyzed what we then called the Emerging Indigenous Rights Framework, which was all of the changes that the Liberals have made to the machinery of government, the new direction policy they're taking, and all the legislation that they have planned uh, for the end of their term, which is in just a year from now. But to give you an indication of how active they are, um, they have, there are 16 bills. I think at last count, there might be 15 now, 16 bills that have either been introduced or passed or uh, are in draft form right now, been proposed uh, and are working through the committee stage uh, affecting Indigenous issues. So 16 which represents 40% of all legislation affecting Native people going back to Confederation. I don't think think people realize that. I don't think people realize that 40% of the legislation, and and some of them are private members' bills, some of them are sort of symbolic, some of them are like constitutional recognition for self-government, but there's a lot of other legislation. There's legislation to split the Department of Indian Affairs, there's legislation on impact assessment, environmental assessment, there's legislation on the National Energy Board, which is being revamped, there's legislation on uh, Orange Shirt Day, and reconciliation generally and languages, indigenous languages there's legislation pending on this uh, rights framework as well, so there's a lot happening Yeah, and as the Supreme Court uh, recently ruled, there's no duty for the federal government to like meaningfully consult or broadly consult on any of this legislative changes with the individual First Nations that it potentially impacts Yeah, so the Miccosuit decision you know the supreme court's supreme court justices basically said we would love for governments to consult with first nations and the honor of the crown compels uh the crown to consult with first nations on any mm-hmm. anything that's going to affect their rights whether they're asserted rights or already established rights mm-hmm. um but they said we as a, the court cannot interfere with what happens in parliament so that would be a breach of the basic uh, division of powers between the, you know, the three branches of uh, Canadian government, the executive, the judiciary, and uh, the legislatures. So on those grounds, they said, there is no obligation by legislatures to consult with First Nations on the drafting of a bill. So basically, First Nations have to wait until a bad bill gets passed or plead for consultation during the uh, uh, writing of the bill. And then when it's bad, take Canada or the provinces to court after the fact, which is a very onerous process and, um, of course, sort of makes a mockery of the honour of the Crown and the duty to consult. Uh, So that's not happening with the rights recognition framework, though. I think you're seeing a lot of superficial consultation. I think you see uh, the federal government has said they have 85 consultations with 
with uh, groups or First Nations or tribal councils. Um, but you attend these consultations and you see the consultations happening and it's basically, you know, the minister at the front making a presentation uh, and community members, First Nation leaders having maybe 30 seconds, maybe three minutes at the most to respond. Um, and no meaning, no indication whatsoever that that uh, feedback is being incorporated into the, into the legislation. And we actually know that that's the case because there has been a lot of critical feedback and between when the federal government started the consultations and when they released their proposal for the legislation very little of that feedback was was included so the federal government's actually going further than the supreme court has said they should go on consultation on legislation but much of it is very superficial you know borderline tokenistic or in fact tokenistic uh, hollow disingenuous consultation Mm-hmm. You know, so sort of like business as usual. Yeah. So, yeah, that sounds uh, pretty overwhelming. It's uh, a bit overwhelming. Yeah, it's... And people are busy, yeah. right? Like, you you know, yeah. this work that you do is, you know, you got some other <laughs> things to deal yeah. with. So it's and the I... people I work with have other things to deal with, too. And I think that's probably the main concern, right, is that you see this continual push for changes in legislation or policy reforms that are happening and people, average people that are going to be most impacted by these changes in legislation just aren't aware of what's going on. They either don't understand it because the language is inaccessible to them or they don't have the time to do it or they're busy just making the ends meet and they're under so much, uh, there's so much immediate need meeting basic human their basic human needs on a daily basis that people don't have the kind of mental space and the ability to like sit and actually process and understand what's happening at this very um at this very high level you know people are concerned with feeding their children making sure things are happening in their community making sure they're doing what they need to do to survive on a day-to-day basis and they just don't have the kind of um mental space to be able to do that because they don't want to talk about capacity because I believe that um, there's, it's not for lack of capacity that the majority of First Nations people are engaging in a meaningful way with this conversation. I think that um, when you provide people with information to make informed decisions, they'll make the good they make good decisions. But it's a matter of people having the information they need to ha- to have information to know what's going on, right, and what the impact on them is potentially going to be. I know that when the most recent presentation was made at the AFN about the rights recognition framework, it was kind of like underwhelming almost a bit because to me it wasn't really clear how any type of new framework differs from some of the existing legislation, right? We talked about it being a rebrand of the Indian Act, right? And like what new legislative powers are being created and what are the legal mechanisms that are being used, right? What are the powers that the Crown has that they're either enacting or shaping and, you know, how are they implementing that in communities? I don't think that has been very clear. And I'm a little bit, you know, my primary focus these days is on child welfare. And I'm just not sure how these things interconnect or interplay and I'm sure that like people with a lot of access to the information feel very comfortable with the direction that's going on I know that there are probably a lot of you know key advisors and key informants that have access to you know have the ear of the minister or senior bureaucrats and are comfortable with where things are going but I don't think the average person has that level of information access or comfort over the decisions that are being made no I th- I, I don't think they do. I mean, those are really good questions. Uh, I think on the, you know, people don't have the, the time or the resources in some ways to be paying attention to what's mm-hmm. happening at this really kind of mm-hmm. complicated, jargon-heavy policy level that's quite inaccessible, I think, even mm-hmm. for us. I mean, we spent three months trying to figure this out mm-hmm. when we wrote the report. Um I would also say, too, that I don't think it's for a lack of inclination because I think that on average, or of what I know of First Nations people, too, they are very keenly interested in these kinds of things, right? People are interested in uh, participating civilly. You know, First Nations people don't vote. We talked about this in an earlier episode. You know, while Indigenous people don't necessarily um, 
vote, they are civil, civilly engaged and civically engaged. And so I think there is an interest. I think people understand um, generally that uh, there's been a history of racist policies that have impacted them and they would there is a that if they were provided the opportunity and information that generally first agency people would want to be included in these and often insist right and I think it comes to the point of frustration where there isn't the intentional effort set to include grassroots people that develops into the kind of civil disobedience and unrest and resistance to colonialism and colonial changes in legislation that have impacted or derailed previous attempts at, uh, you know, creating legislation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, you know, we'd, we'd mentioned this in the past episode or a past episode. I mean, it's not as though Native people are apathetic or aloof, although there is some of that, but uh, the most politically active group in Canadian society, uh, but politically active in many different ways with many different obligations and responsibilities that in some ways prevents accessing this, this, this particular discussion. And so that's where, you know, leadership is supposed to step up, where, where the leaders of our communities are supposed to be saying, okay, we have these critical issues that deal, that need to be dealt with immediately, like people's safety and security. Um, but Hey, also there's this, uh, radical transformation, although it's not really a radical transformation, it's being billed as that that's coming and we need as leaders to break down this information for our community members, get feedback and then go and present alternatives to Canada. And I don't know how much that's actually happening to be honest with you. And I think part of it is because the assembly of first nations has, at least at the initial stages, I think a little bit less now, um, been championing, championing the rights framework. And that has led regional organizations and and, uh, community leaders to either not have access to the most critical uh, perspectives or information about the rights framework, but also maybe signal to them that it's not that big of a deal. Like if it was a big deal, then surely our regional and national leaders would raise these red flags that we could then go and talk uh, to the communities about. But, you know, the federal government plans to introduce this legislation by December, uh, which is a couple of months from now, and people aren't talking about it, people don't know about it, people aren't mobilizing around it, people aren't organizing. So that the alternative is that people do know all about it, they have read all about it, they've read our report, they've read the analysis put out by other people like Joyce Green and Gina Starblanket and Gordon Peters and Russ Dybo, and they've just decided, okay, well that's actually not that bad, it's fine, we're okay with that. I mean, that's a possibility too. I think it's uh, a more unlikely possibility, but it's, it is uh, there. But I think that the question that you raised about law and what the actual legal, legal ramifications of this legislation are, or is a really good question, because even for somebody that's been paying close attention to this process, uh, it's not entirely clear how binding this is going to be, what the ramifications are going to be legally, because effectively what it is from what we can tell from what the federal officials have told us, what leaked documents that we can get our hands on are saying is that this is going to be recognition legislation. So what that means is that the federal government is going to accept that self-government is a constitutional right uh, under Section 35 and they are going to create a process by which First Nations, but in the federal government's model, they would prefer First Nations aggregated, so joined forces with other communities, whether it's in a treaty association that already exists or a national organization that already exists or a tribal council, and then undertake this this recognition process of self-government. So if you can satisfy, you know, if you're financially fit, if you have the good governance institutions like data management and uh, HR policies, um, then you can qualify for self-government and then the federal government will work with the provinces to devolve uh, a very narrow range of policy areas. So that might look like taking control of education. That might look like taking control of child welfare. Um, In some cases it might revolve around healthcare. 
but it's very narrow uh, and restricted to not much greater powers than currently exist. The question about law and the legal ramifications are, does this lock us in to this particular vision of, of self-determination? It's certainly going to be more than the Indian Act, but is it going to foreclose opportunities for broader uh, exercise of jurisdiction? I think that I'm probably on the leaning on the yes side. There are real dangers in that. Yeah, and I think the concern is too is that you know you're using words like First Nation, but do you actually just mean Indian bands? Yeah, and there's reserves. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you are in a modern treaty. Uh, so, you know, one of these comprehensive claims that has turned into a modern treaty and a self-government process, then the rights recognition framework legislation will affect you less. Because what you have right now is basically what Canada is trying to usher Indian bands who are under the Indian Act into. Um, and then in addition to uh, First Nations that have self-government agreements, there's Métis organizations, and I think on balance, the Métis organizations are just very optimistic about this rights framework because it provides them an opportunity to negotiate self-government and maybe even uh, land claims where that didn't exist before. And then you have Inuit who uh, are in, of course, five different regions in the country, but all of those regions have modern treaties except for um, you know, a very uh, small number of, of communities. So we're primarily talking about First Nations, uh, Indian Indian Act bands, yeah. So I think that's kind of the piece too that's getting, um, that's confusing for the average person to understand is that, you know, they're saying First Nation, and especially for me as like a Haudenosaunee person, that is very specific uh, implications that are just not clear. So if I were to think about like, you know, my nation, the Mohawk Nation, as a, a as a people as a part of a confederacy they're not talking about um you know us as a nation that you know transcend you know goes across the border um with the u.s they're not talking about us as like Ginyakahaga people they're talking about like six nations of the grand river territory you know reserve number 40 and their ability to do that and frankly like that's the administrative system that was is another part of colonialism right another tool of colonialism so they're not talking about recognizing hereditary or traditional indigenous governance. They're talking about like the modern Indian Act creation, another evolution of the band council system into a more, you know, a morphed amalgamation of that, right? So whether it's along tribal councils, but it's not really clear. And if, you know, and certainly different communities are, are at different spaces in it too, right? Like if you look at the Anishinaabek Nation in Ontario as being like, you know, not like niche people, but like the organization Anishinaabek Nation, which is in the Robinson Huron Treaty area made up of the bands that are in that area, like that to me is, they would probably be one of the best to kind of like implement this new kind of recognition because they kind of have already sorted out a lot of their issues with, uh, you know, the territory that they have within their traditional treaty area to a certain extent. But that's not of it. That's not the same place where the Haudenosaunee are at when it yeah. comes to us having territory, you know, in Wisconsin and New York State and Quebec and Ontario, right? Like our conceptualization of ourselves as, you know, people spread across different communities isn't, uh, hasn't uh, reached that same kind of cohesiveness because of these very systems that exist, right? There are enforced administrative bodies in our territory that are the ones who are negotiating these kinds of agreements with the federal government without our hereditary or traditional governance system. So it's not actually an enaction of indigenous governance. It is a, uh, you know, an evolution of the colonial system. I think that that's a really good way to describe it because there, uh, you know, Canada will say, we don't care how you quote unquote reconstitute your nations. You know, we don't care. If you want to pursue a hereditary system, we're open to discussing and negotiating that with you. See, but there's the trick. They're not, you know, outright recognizing your governance structure, whether it's you or it's me or whoever. They want to, they're open to discussing the negotiation process for what that nation, reconstituted nation, looks like. But 
it is not a radical departure. It is not a, it is not a, they're not interested in entertaining discussions of uh, territories outside of the reserve. They're not interested in, in talking about jurisdiction that is uh, much beyond the very narrow band that First Nations already uh, can apply for and negotiate for in a modern treaty process or a custom code process. Uh, they're not interested in engaging in any meaningful way with uh, hereditary rights or hereditary, or not hereditary, uh, mm -hmm. inherent rights and uh, 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 more you know, authentic forms of governance that challenge fundamentally mm -hmm. anything about settler colonialism. And I think the Anishinaabek Nation is a good example of the First Nations who maybe are not speaking so much uh, about the rights framework or the ones who are um, supportive of it. Uh, they're, I think, primarily the, the First Nations in the communities that have figured out a way to make the band council system work by degrees. You know, it's not an authentic form of governance, but it's something that sort of works. And so the Anishinaabek education system that the Anishinaabek Nation had, uh, negotiated with the province and the federal government is used over and over again uh, as an example of what uh, this rec rights recognition framework could produce. Uh, the child welfare law that the Anishinaabek Nation is producing, again, is an example being held up by the uh, Department of Indian Affairs as something that is, you know, a manifestation of rights recognition. But it's not a redistribution of wealth. It's not a recognition of jurisdiction over territories beyond the reserve. It's not uh, 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 any uh, 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 recognition of... Uh, of indigenous power or self-determination beyond the administrative, as you said, it's sort of the evolution of, of the band council system. And so that's uh, the direction in which they're headed. And all of the, whether it's, you know, their 10 principles respecting the, the uh, relationship with indigenous people, whether it's the restructuring of the Department of Indian Affairs to Crown Indigenous Relations on the one hand, Indigenous Services on the other hand, and Northern Affairs on the, the other, the third hand, I guess. The, um, each of those sort of structural changes hints at this uh, desired outcome. You know, when you talk about the Ten Principles, the federal government is saying things like, you know, we're going to, uh, we're not going to, uh, we're going to respect your rights, we're going to respect your title, and if we have to infringe in your, on your rights, we'll do so respectfully. But we're still going to infringe. Yeah, and I think primarily when you look at, you know, the infringement or the people who have historically had their rights infringed on the most, it's Indigenous women and First Nations women. Yeah. And that's kind of the accepted kind of sacrifice that people are asked to make, especially when it comes around, you know, talking about these legislative pieces that have been implemented by the liberals like at bill s3 is one of them right like that's one of the pieces where it was supposed to you know it was called a bill to end sex discrimination in the indian act and then through the analysis it was revealed it didn't actually end sex-based discrimination in the indian act so they just changed the name of the bill to respond to the dational ruling and then kind of played that off right and said like well we're going to introduce this new bill and it kind of talks about sex discrimination that first she's going to uh, experience, but then it actually just went on to describe an engagement process and an expectation of engagement around band membership. And then it, what it does is it devolves the ability of uh, for determining who are members to communities, which on the surface sounds good, but if it's not done in a way that is restorative to gender-based discrimination, it's just allowing bands to continue to uh, discriminate against women and their descendants, but now they're the ones that are doing it instead of the federal government. You know, right. it's no longer the Indian Act definition of who's a band member. Now they're saying, oh, you know what? It's actually the bands, and the bands are deciding. Well, in a lot of instances, the bands are deciding to continue to exclude people that have maybe the same lineage as some of their on reserve members, but um, are disconnected from community because of historic sex based discrimination. I think that this area, and I mean, I didn't even mention Bell S3 when we were talking about the legislation that's impending, uh, but I think on issues of gender and issues of uh, urban issues as well, the rights framework is really lacking 
any attention on, on, on those yeah. issues. And I think when you consider the kind of analysis that is done by either understanding the develop the evolution or I guess the progress that's made in urban spaces in Canada by Indigenous people or, you know, a robust gender-based analysis, then you're really showing the kind of, um, I want to say like eight, like old or kind of like lack of kind of modernity to these kinds of policy or legislative reforms, because I feel like this is kind of, you know, the 2018 kind of tools that are used in policy development to kind of be a, the cutting edge of you know, societal changes and societal shift, shifts and indigenous policy is completely lacking this kind of robust analysis. I th yeah, I, I mean, we we tried in the uh, Yellowhead critical analysis of the rights framework to include some from some gender analysis and urban analysis as well, but I think that we, we came up short in that area. So, you know, it's not only the, uh, the legislation and the policy that's being it, developed by the federal government, uh, but it's also, you know, our responses to it. And I think that, you know, we're trying to address that, and uh, I think others are as well. But First Nations, as you say, I, I, don't, I don't think are yeah. considering any of that when they're, when they're providing mm -hmm. resources for the communities on how to uh, address the rights framework. Yeah, and I think that like, the kind of idea of having like a First Nations policy analyst is something that is very, very new and kind of a reaction and an adaptation that communities have made to respond to the legislative pieces, right? Like if you look at leadership or, you know, talking about kind of the core infrastructure that communities have had, you know, a lot of times the only thing you did have was a chief, right? A lot of communities, those are, you know, bank counters, those are the only jobs and they take them on and having the ability for leaders to be able to go into these conversations and be prepared with their own analysis and their own kind of like briefing materials to understand agendas and what's going to be discussed and having background information and research at their hands, like that's a very new emergence, right? And there's kind of these pockets of policy analysis that are happening now that were never available to our communities, you know, in like this, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, when there were these big pushes. And I know that like, I think of like my own bosses that I've had in the past who have literally said like there was never like this was these are some of the first people that have had these positions or worked in them for a long time and you know the emergence of indigenous lawyers and indigenous policymakers is quite new and we have this like building kind of ability to be able to call bullshit on some of these legislative pieces that are happening to us right which is why I get so frustrated that you know a lot of leaders have fought for people like me to be able to take on these positions take on these roles and then you see organizations like the AFN that just write the worst garbage when it comes to policy analysis right they have adopted the language of obfuscation and weasel words and policy and take that and regurgitate that back to the federal government instead of actually writing something that's substantive and informed. It's like we've kind of gone through many generations of policy work in a very, you know, a very fast way. It's a little bit of a paradox because what you're saying is, mm -hmm. you know, there is this emerging yeah. generation of critical, sharp, uh, First Nation policy analysts, and then it might not be, you know, self-consciously in the mm -hmm. field of policy or, or politics, mm -hmm. but, you know, they, they, they might be elders, they might be mm -hmm. youth, and they're leveling these critiques. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the same time, mm -hmm. we have uh, uh, a lack of engagement by a lot of our leaders in these processes. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to, or I think part of the challenge is, uh, the, the the obfuscation that's happening, and I, I suppose that's nothing new. But if you if you look at you know the previous attempts to reform the Indian Act, whether it was 1951, Louis Saint Laurent and the Liberal government tried to uh, change the Indian Act, they changed it substantively after a year of consultation. But the mm -hmm. one demand that First Nation leaders made then was um, self determination, self government. And then the, the Liberals said, you know, we're going to do everything except that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they also introduced Section 88, which has led to uh, the province taking over responsibility for things like child welfare. Um, there was resistance to that. It continued to build. Then we had the 1969 White Paper. Um, First Nation leaders lacking 
a lot of the policy capacities. Nonetheless, we're able to push back on that, get it shelved. Uh, we had constitutional talks. Uh, again, you know, we had the Charlottetown Accord, which would have led to the erosion of the Indian Act and moving towards self-government. It didn't go far enough and it died, you know, probably as a result of the racism of Canadians and also, I guess, the unpopularity, the unpopularity, the, uh, <laughs> the, by that point, uh, very disliked Brian Mulroney. Uh, then you had the Governance Act in the mid 2000s, uh, trying to change the Indian Act. And again, it was shelved because there was such a response from First Nations uh, saying this, this doesn't go far enough. It's like Harold Cardinal said after the, after the white paper, like we don't like the Indian Act. We don't want the Indian Act. Uh, but if we're not going to have a serious conversation about what, uh, where, where treaties factor into this discussion, where inherent rights factor into this discussion, then we'd rather keep the Indian Act than this garbage that you're providing for us right now. Um, but you don't really see that level of engagement today, despite the emerging uh, group of policy analysts that I suppose are just, there's a, there's a cleavage, there's a division between communities and leadership that I think uh, is, is happening and the right framework discussions are bringing it into focus I think and I think that one of the things that has always kind of been the consequence of this is that with the emphasis of tying programming and basic needs into jurisdictional talks has really done a disservice to our communities right because we have an you know this now um, compiling or I guess growing and compounding lack of service lack of basic needs being met in communities and at a, a lot of different instances it's because of uh, you know our push for jurisdiction our push for rights recognition our push for our own kind of uh, acknowledgement of inherent rights has at I guess had, has been pointed to as one of the reasons why programming isn't implemented into communities. And I think that like that's one of the biggest barriers, right, is that programming has always been tied to, um, and why I asked earlier about the legal mechanisms too, right, because when you draw these powers or when you draw programming or when you draw transfer payment agreements and funding from pieces of legislation and law that... Um, requires the disempowerment or the acknowledgement of First Nations that they don't have inherent rights or they, their rights aren't recognized into, as a fundamental piece of accepting any type of infrastructure or, or programming dollars, then it, it leads to these kinds of conversations, right? Where it's like, we're not going to, a lot of times communities have been asked or have said, you know, we're not going to have these two things tied together. But when they are tied together, you see this, like that systemic marginalization or the systemic lack of need being met in communities, right? Which is why I'm kind of like, uh, you know, the my, as much as I love policy, I also put like the programming hat on, right? And say like, you look at kind of the announcement of investment from the federal government of these funding agreements that they have available to them or even the capacity to development funding that they're, they've announced. And it's tied to things like being an incorporated agency, right? So you have to be incorporated. You have to have certain pieces. You have to have a base level of kind of indoctrination into colonial governance and organizational structures to be able to access the kind of money that you need to be able to engage and develop these conversations without actually critically analyzing the fact that like, hey, people should just get money to do their shit without having to meet all of these colonial expectations to be able to access that funds, right? Mm -hmm. Like that kind of access to our own resources or money that's made out of our own resources shouldn't be contingent on already at a very, um, you know, a very base level buying into these certain colonial concepts right. of organizational structure, right? Like you're talking about incorporated bodies. Well, you can't have an overlap within or incorporated bodies or recon recognized under the not-for-profit act or all these kinds of things. Like they create these, um, these systemic barriers that a lot of people don't even understand, right? And so when our own structures aren't meeting our own needs, like the AFN, like the Native Women's Association of Canada, like CAP, like when they don't meet our needs, you actually can't create alternative structures to them because of the protections that are afforded those organizations right. under the Not-for-Profit Act. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty stinging critique. And what's interesting is 
when you listen to the advice that leadership is getting from lawyers, it's on the, on the policy and programming side, it's like, let's just get this in legislation and then we can finally have something to hold governments accountable for. Like they're not paying, they're not really paying attention to the structure of governance that's being created and the structure of service delivery and all the implications for uh, First Nation, expansive First Nation jurisdiction. They just want to improve life for kids, for women, for communities. And if they have something in law that they can hold the government accountable to, then they're saying, let's move forward, let's just do this in advising the First Nation leadership to do it. And so that's, I think, you know, uh, one of the reasons that we're, we're, we're not ha having a fulsome analysis because there's some bad bad advice because we're not taking into the consideration this very big question that you raise. And I think on the funding, it's really where we see uh, the government's rhetoric fall down. So if this government was really serious about improving the lives of Indigenous people in quote-unquote reconstituting nations, then there would actually be resources. There'd be significant resources. And now the Liberals have invested money in social policy and in uh, the last few budgets, uh, funding has increased, um, and there's money for capacity building, right? So First Nations can apply to create a comprehensive community plan, and they can apply to create an election code and a membership code and all these governance uh, tools. But those are sort of one-time proposal-based fundings to, as you say, align First Nation governments with federal and provincial governments. And what I mean by that is getting everybody on the same legal, economic, technical pages so we can communicate with each other to make service delivery more seamless while, all the while, effectively assimilating uh, First Nation governments, transforming them into uh, arms of uh, government agencies, federal government agencies, or in some cases, provincial government agencies. And what we see with that kind of you know, development of organizations or even from like an organizational structure, it creates gaps, right? It puts people in communities in a position where the onus is on them to navigate these siloed systems and bureaucracies in order to get their needs met, right? The system is set up and then people have to go and get their, their health services from one place and their legal services from another place and their child welfare services from somewhere else. And it's always on primarily like women and children to be able to navigate these systems while people that have a lot of privilege um, by occupying these spaces as you know workers or directors that they kind of are the ones that build the system around them to suit their comfort and then protect those systems yeah um, yes and and I and I would like to see in addition to the legal analysts some mm -hmm. First Nation economists or, or uh, economic analysis around um, how these new bodies, these reconstituted nations, yeah. which are going to deliver services, are going to be funded. Because as I was saying before, I think this is where the rubber really hits the road with the liberals, because they, you know, they want to completely reimagine um, how First Nations are financed. And nobody, nobody is arguing that a change there is required. I mean, massive, chronic underfunding, uh, 20 years of cuts every year to First Nations uh, 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 until recently. We haven't really seen the definitive evidence that the two percent cap is listed or uh, 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 is lifted at least on the ground. Um, but what the federal government wants to do is say, hey, instead of this one-year funding model, which we currently have and which nobody anywhere can do any significant planning under, we're going to create these ten-year block grants. Now, to get access to this 10-year funding, if you're a First Nation, you just have to meet a few qualifications, right? You have to have all of your financial house in order, and that means reorganizing your uh, institutions to, uh, as I said earlier, be able to communicate with, you know, your provincial or your federal counterparts. And then there's going to be this, uh, you know, arm's length body, which is not really arm's length body. These are these sort of First Nation financial institutions whose members are appointed by the federal government, saying, yes, First Nation A, you're qualified to receive these 10-year grants. First Nation B, you're qualified to, to, for these 10-year grants. And it's effectively the new financing regime is basically a civilizing process, like getting, getting good governance uh, in place, good financial governance in place for First Nations, as opposed to 
that redistribution of wealth that's required. So um, that's a significant issue. And by the way, you know, say you do qualify for these 10-year grants, it doesn't mean your funding is going to increase. You know, you could go through all this process to get the 10-year grants and it be 10 years of really bad funding. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, mm-hmm. you know. And that's the thing too where like it's, it's the, these questions arise of like who is going to, when we're talking about program, we were talking about meeting the basic needs, right? It's like why, I don't, what I kind of have a problem wrapping my head around is why these two things are so intrinsically tied to one another and why is it happening where we can't actually provide the services that meet people's basic needs without having it tied to the complete surrender of all of our rights. Yeah. And I think that no one is saying that we shouldn't be doing the things that we need to do to meet the needs of like women, children, or people in our communities or our elders. But it's like, why do these conversations happen simultaneously, right? Why are they happening? Why are they, why do they have to be paired with one another? And why are we having conversations around, you know, these really like, you know, this is kind of the framework that exists, right? Like governments receive taxes and this is how they spend taxes and they, they can only spend it in, you know, through transfer payment agreements or other direct operating expenses and all of these kinds of structural ways. But it's like, why, why is, why are we having a conversation about these kinds of issues in this way? Because the federal government wants to mitigate and manage its risk. So it wants to head off Mm -hmm the somewhat progressive decisions of the Supreme Court on Aboriginal title and rights. It wants to head off First Nations who are finally at a point where they're starting to assert their own jurisdiction in these areas. And they want to manage that risk and do it by uh, transforming First Nations into these uh, uh, reconstituted uh, administrative bodies with devolved responsibilities and obligations and no semblance of Real rights, title, power, wealth distribution, or anything. They're trying to be put us in the driver's seat of that process for ourselves, I guess, too, right? Making us feel like we are the ones that are actually asking and pursuing for this kind of change to happen in this way. Well, we want change. Everyone wants change, but (laughs) it's uh, change is uh, depends on the direction of the change. And I think that with the rights framework, it's uh, not in a good direction. There's a ton more to discuss on this particular issue. Our, our, uh, we're our running out of road and we're running <laughs> out of tape. <laughs> so we gotta, we have to go. But if you, if we do end up getting this podcast out on Tuesday and you're listening to it and you're in Toronto, um, maybe stop on by Ryerson and hear Courtney and I and uh, Gordon Peters and Kelsey Lim Rivers and Tanya Capo and Cherry Pasternak. Uh, talk about the rights framework report. Yeah. And follow Yellowhead. And we'll be talking about this probably more on the Red Road. I think so. Yeah. In the meantime, we're get high. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheel.